From beanies to carry bags and from shoes to caps, browse our shop now at tntradio.live. Cutting through the clutter, this is the Misty Winston Show on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Well, hey there, and welcome to the Misty Winston Show right here on today's News Talk. Happy Monday. I don't know. Can Mondays be happy? I don't know. Whatever. Um, okay, so a whole new week of shows. Uh, a great week coming up, so definitely don't make uh, make sure you don't miss a, a minute of that. 5 p.m. Eastern right here on TNT. Um, I'm very excited. Today we have Aaron Good on the show. He has been researching American Empire for a very long time, and as always, there's much to discuss on that front, so uh, that should be a fantastic uh, discussion, and we will be bringing him in momentarily. So first, I wanted to talk to you about, hey, surprise, Assange, um, uh, but there's a reason why um, I wanted to talk about it today because um so recently the committee to protect journalists <laughs> uh they released their census report for 2023 guess who's not mentioned a uh, one julian assange so um uh kevin gastola who by the way is an incredible journalist who's been covering the assange situation since the chelsea manning stuff so even before assange was um arrested or uh, being detained or any of that stuff so um he writes for the dissenter um so go check that out he has this article up it's out today um so and he said actually it's out from a couple days ago because this happened over the weekend apologies um so it's called in assange's darkest hour committee to protect journalists yet again exclude him from the jail journalist index so he says here the committee to protect protect journalists cpj released its census report for 2023 320 detained or imprisoned journalists were counted by the press freedom organization as of december 1st 2023 as indicated that number is not far from the record high of 360 jailed journalists that was set in 2022 the 2023 census takes on greater significance given the Israeli government's war on Gaza and the military attacks and crackdown on Palestinian journalists. 17 journalists were jailed by Israel, the, quote, highest number of arrests, end quote, since CPJ began tracking arrests in 1992. It is the first time that Israel has, quote, ranked among the top six offenders, end quote. But at this moment, WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange and his legal team are preparing for a major hearing on February 20th before the High Court of Justice in the United Kingdom. They view the hearing as a final opportunity to save him from extradition to the United States, where he was charged with violating the Espionage Act in 2019. Assange needs press freedom organizations, especially those with U.S. headquarters, to strengthen their stand against the charges from the Justice Department. However, for another year, CPJ excluded the imprisoned former WikiLeaks editor-in-chief from their database of jail journalists. I emailed CPJ a request for comment and asked why Assange remains excluded from the organization's annual jail journalist census, especially given CPJ's methodology. The response that a CPJ communications person sent me was disappointing. Quote, after extensive research and consideration, CPJ chose not to list Assange as a journalist, in part because his role has just as often been as a source... And because WikiLeaks does not generally perform as a news outlet with an editorial process, end quote, CPJ answered. <laughs> Ridiculous. Uh, the statement was copied and pasted from a 2019 post that then CPJ executive editor Robert Mahoney authored where he defended the exclusion of Assange. I pointed out to CPJ that this, quote, extensive research and consideration, end quote, was completed in 2019. And I did so because perhaps it is time for CPJ to reassess their determination. To that, CPJ replied, Quote, yes, there have been many articles about our position on Assange. While you're free to disagree, our position has been clear, transparent, and consistent for years. Yeah, that's the problem. 
Uh, indeed, CPJ's position has been clear. The organization has been consistent in their exclusion of Assange from press freedom from the Press Freedom Organization's annual census. It is debatable whether the organization has been transparent. To my knowledge, the, quote, extensive research and consideration, end quote, that they did to decide that Assange is not a journalist has never been shared with the public. Also, it remains puzzling how a press freedom organization led by primarily journalists with experience in news gathering can insist that Assange is a source. He has never held a security clearance or a position in the United States government that would give him access to classified documents. The source of the documents at issue in the Espionage Act prosecution against Assange was a U.S. Army intelligence analyst known as Chelsea Manning. She had access to the classified military and government documents submitted over 700,000 files to WikiLeaks and Assange published them in 2010 and 2011. My request for comment mentions CPJ's own methodo methodology for labeling someone a journalist. However, CPJ ignored this part of my question. Um, so Kevin goes on to discuss some further details on this issue. Um, it is insane to imply that Assange is not a journalist. He is a card-carrying member of at least two journalist unions. Um, he's an honorary member of several others. He has won dozens of awards for journalism. He's never acted as a source, ever. Um, and WikiLeaks is absolutely a news organization. There's no question about it. Um, do they perform in the same manner and method as some other news organizations? No, they're really the first of their kind. They, um, there's no conjecture. It's not opinion. It's not, um, you know, we're going to talk to a source and then write an article and, you know, interject our own personal feelings or whatever. Um, they offer 100% verifiable and authenticated source documentation. It's just the truth in black and white. So, um, this is what's so frustrating. Uh, reporters without borders have done the exact same thing. They have failed to mention him and their list, their year-end roundup of detained journalists for three years in a row as well. Um, and so that's the fight. Uh, it, we, it, that's why this fight is so hard because two of the biggest press freedom uh, NGOs can't even be bothered to mention Assange in their uh, year-end roundup for jailed journalists. It's insane. So um, reach out to them nicely. Obviously, don't be rude, but reach out to them and uh, express your opinion on the shenanigans because... <sighs> Man, that's frustrating. Um, okay, don't forget you can follow me over on the tweeters at Sarcasm Stardust. Check out the Substack, mistywinston.substack.com. There's a write-up for the guest of the day every day, so you can find, follow, and support their work as well. And shoot me an email, mistywinston at tntradio.live. Um, guest idea, show idea, I love that stuff. Also, if you just have a question, comment, rant, whatever, uh, hit me up and I will try to get back to you. And while you're at it, uh, why not give TNT Radio a follow? We're on all the major social media platforms, including Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Gab, and Getter, so you can help us get the word out as we cover the biggest topics of our time right here on today's News Talk. Giving you what you want. I want the fact. Today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Hey, speaking of journalism, on Monday, attorneys for an independent journalist facing prosecution for being at the U.S. Capitol on January 6, 2021, accused prosecutors of seeking retribution against their client for his recent reporting on possible Capitol police perjury and the January 6 pipe bomb. So here at the story, joining me now is TNT News producer Adam Clark, a.k.a. Ruckus. Man, the attacks on journalists just keep coming, huh, Adam? There's like a theme going on here. It's not like what, we didn't even plan this or anything. <laughs> I love not. it when a non-plan <laughs> comes together. Uh, anyways, um, <laughs> yeah, this is this is sad. I'm actually quite familiar with this uh, this journalist. It's Stephen Baker. Uh, I guess he's no longer independent anymore. He works for Blaze Media. Um, I'm just gonna, you know what? Let me just 
read a statement uh, in his own words that was pre uh, presented to uh, the world uh, courtesy of his uh, lawyers. Quote, my name is Stephen Baker and I am a journalist. Well, now we already know what the problem is, right? Anyways, quote, I am now employed by Blaze Media and I have been a freelance writer and journalist for more than 25 years. I have covered newsworthy events around the country for over 10 years. I went to Washington, D.C. on January 6, 2021, just like dozens of other journalists, and I covered the events of the day. For more than 30 months, it has been said to me by representatives of the Department of Justice that I am under investigation and twice I have been told that an indictment charging me with crimes would be filed within a matter of days. For the past eight months, I have been reviewing non-public, closed-circuit television video and body-worn camera video in the possession of Congress at the invitation of the Speaker of the House. I have found and published stories about video evidence that contradicts claims made by the Department of Justice and evidence presented by the DOJ in various trials of the January 6 defendants. After not having indicted me for three years, it is clear that any move to do so now will be in retaliation for my reporting. First, about apparently perjured testimony by key government witnesses, Harry Dunn and David Lazarus, and now about the true identity of the quote-unquote passerby who discovered the pipe bomb outside the DNC headquarters a short distance from the Capitol. The quote-unquote passerby was actually a U.S. Capitol police officer. I will not be intimidated. I will continue to report the findings of my investigation into the evidence being made available to me to review. I have followed and reported on dozens of trials of January 6 defendants, and the more I investigate, the greater is my unease as what is being done in the name of justice, end quote. Signed, Stephen Baker, January 22nd, 2024. And now he has six attorneys who say that they have volunteered to represent him. They released a, a statement uh, reaffirming this, and they expressed the belief that they are the DOJ might be seeking even more serious January 6th charges. And they are basically uh, asking that they um, move this outside of um, uh, they, they uh, sorry, they, they want it to be. They want to try the case outside the District of Columbia because they think that he would get an unfair deal if this were to take place in D.C., all things considered. Um, and uh, they're probably right. So I believe that they, they are asking specifically, um, where would they like this? They said the attorneys are challenging the DOJ to try any case against Mr. Baker in the Eastern District of North Carolina, where Mr. Baker lives, or in the Northern District of Texas, where his employer, Blaze Media, is located. Uh, the statement asks, quote, are citizens of those two districts not suitable jurors in Steve's case? Is the federal judiciary in those two districts not able to provide a fair and impartial trial? On what basis does the United States Department of Justice believe the United States can only get a fair trial in the District of Columbia and not one of these United States, end quote. Good question. Um, but yeah, he's probably not going to do so well if they, uh, you know, try him in D.C., Misty. But what do you think? 
I mean, this is, I mean, not surprising. We have been watching this stuff, the January 6th stuff play out, and it's been very obviously ridiculous and unfair uh, from jump. Um, And so this is not surprising. I don't think that he's going to be, I don't don't think they're going to move his trial, unfortunately. Frankly, I don't think any any single one of the January 6th defendants should have been tried in D.C. Obviously, there is no chance to get a fair trial um, uh, under those circumstances. And um, I'm glad that he says he's going to continue reporting. Um, I hope that he means that. I hope that he won't be swayed or intimidated um, because they're going to continue to keep trying to do that. And um, it's so bizarre to me that they're he as far as I know, he didn't actively participate in anything. He was there as a journalist. He was just observing. Um, so I'm not really sure what exactly they're uh, going after him for. And I think that it's, uh, it's it, you can pretty clearly make the conclusion that it is, in fact, as he said, they are trying to intimidate him based on his reporting of uh, other circumstances, including the Capitol Police officer conveniently being the person with the pipe bomb, um, not with the pipe bomb, but the guy that noticed it or whatever. Um, so. Yeah, this is, uh, it's troubling to say the least. I mean, listen, I had friends on the ground on January 6th who were there uh, acting as journalists. Obviously, I will not say their names out loud because I don't want them to be put in this position either. But I mean, I was in D.C. the morning that the January 6th uh, took place. I had to leave that day because uh, I had to get back to my kids. But we were there for Assange stuff over the weekend. Um, and uh, so I know a lot of people who were on the ground there. And it's, uh, it, it, I don't care. Like, what's very frustrating to me, Adam, is that, This has become a very tribal thing, and I think a lot of liberals are very quick to celebrate the prosecution and um, conviction of January Sixers, Uh, and nobody should be celebrating that. This is insanity. I think that um, it was very clearly a setup. Uh, MAGA, you totally got set up. I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but there's no question about it. I think a lot of people went there with genuine concerns about the election, rightfully so. You have a right to question that. You have a right to question your government. You have a right to protest. Um, And you were, some of you uh, fell for some entrapment stuff. Um, Some of you just got caught up in uh, the mood of the moment. Some of you did nothing wrong whatsoever and ended up getting charged anyway. So um, it's very frustrating to watch this play out. And I hope that he is able to get his trial moved. I just don't think, I think it's very unlikely. There's nothing fair about any of this stuff. But what do you think, Adam? Uh, He should probably change his reporting and that'll help his case, right? (laughs) (laughs) Just kidding. Don't do that, Steve. Um, Yeah, this is sad. This is, this is, this is easily one of the most frightening um, scenarios ever. I mean, we're already concerned about the ability to, you know, Uh, address our grievances with our government, which we have the right to protest such things, as you indicated. But now we're seeing the attack on that freedom. And now, you know, this guy, who cares what his politics is? He just was supposed to be a journalist. And then outside of that, he's just doing his reporting. And, And again, this is the most frightening scenario ever is that, you know, you're a reporter and you know who the bad guy is, but the bad guy is the one who's in charge of, you know, throwing your ass in jail if you report that they're the bad guy. So what do you do? Yeah. <laughs> you know, this is yeah. frightening. It is. And that's what's so um, frustrating about this is that it's it's very clear to me that January 6th has been used to um, destroy the First Amendment in so many ways, not just, uh, you know, this guy and the, and the press freedom aspect of it, but obviously just our ability to protest. And now we have a situation where um, there's many reasons why people should be protesting their government actively. It is as an activist uh, who's been who is on the ground pretty regularly. It's so hard to get people to come out and a lot 
lot of it, a lot of it is due to fear. A lot of people are genuinely afraid to get in the streets and protest their government. And it's not just because of January 6th. People have been afraid for a very long time, even prior to January 6th. But January 6th has made it so much worse. People are terrified. Um, they don't want uh, what's happening to J6ers to end up happening to them. They don't want to end up in jail uh, for who knows how long for protesting their government. So this was all very calculated. And unfortunately, has been very effective. So uh, we'll keep an eye on it, though. Thanks for bringing us this story, Adam. We'll talk to you again tomorrow. As always, hang tight. We're going to be back right here on today's News Talk. TNT's Steve Malsberg. If a president could be prosecuted for things he did, which he believed and was advised by his lawyers, what, what was was the duty of the president to do, and then after the fact, after he's president, he could be prosecuted, the example has come up today many times. Well, when Joe Biden leaves office, he could be prosecuted for not securing the border. Barack Obama um, okayed drone strikes against American citizens overseas. He could be prosecuted for murder. I mean, this opens up a whole can of worms. Um, Pandora's box, I think, is the term that, uh, that Trump used. Steve Malzberg on today's News Talk TNT. Right now. The forgotten poor are waiting for healing and care, for life-saving medical care, for a chance to live with dignity and hope. They are waiting for Mercy Ships and you. Mercy Ships is the largest floating civilian hospital in the world with volunteer medical staff and crew who donate their time to save lives. And now, as our newest state-of-the-art hospital ship sets sail, Mercy Ships will double our ability to reach children and adults who need us now. Without the work of Mercy Ships, these patients don't have another option. Mercy Ships is answering the call to serve suffering people who have nowhere else to turn. Together, we are going to some of the world's most desperate places and bringing a wave of hope and healing to those who need it most. To learn more about this wave of hope, go to mercyships.org today. CO2 sustains all life on Earth, but now it's in long-term decline. We face the return of an ice age. We mandate that the truth be told. Today's News Talk Radio, TNT. All right, our guest today is my friend Aaron Good. Aaron has a PhD in political science from Temple University. His dissertation, American Exception, Hegemony, and the Tripartite, uh, tripartite State Examine the State Elite Crim Criminality in U.S. Hegemony. Uh, it was an expansion of a previously published article, American Exception, Hegemony, and the Dissimulation. I can't talk today. It's Monday. Be patient with me. Uh, of the state, he also published the book American Exception, Empire and the Deep State in 2022 and hosts the American Exception podcast, which you can find on all the major podcast platforms. Uh, you can also check out his website, AmericanException.com, and you can follow him over on Twitter at Aaron underscore good underscore Aaron. Thanks for being here. Hey, great to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. It's always uh, good to talk to you. And obviously, there's a lot going on. There's a ton of things I wanted to talk to you about. I was hoping that we could start with Ukraine. Um, obviously, we're coming up on the two years, uh, on two years now since the recent escalation uh, between Russia and Ukraine. Where do you see this conflict going now? And um, what, what do you, where do you think we're headed with this for 2024? I think that it's taken something as enormous and hideous as the siege of Gaza to make people forget a little bit about the disaster in Ukraine. But I don't, 
I can't predict precisely where it is going, but I, I, I think increasingly that the possibility of an unconditional surrender at some point is in the cards because the U.S. refuses to negotiate because that would be accepting, uh, you know, defeat before an election. And uh, I, I think that Biden and company may have the idea that they can somehow extend this uh, for, you know, for the next, what, nine, ten months. But it, it, that doesn't seem realistic because it seems increasingly the uh, the U.S. installed regime in Kiev uh, is resorting to more brutal tactics of like just, you know, kind of mindlessly attacking civilian centers and so on as much as they can, which they're not even really that effective in that regard, but they can do some damage. <laughs> While Russia, on the other hand, I got the, the, the war in Gaza, or I don't even call it a war. It's really a, a, a genocidal campaign against a largely defenseless population, but it really shows what it looks like when a military advanced military power does try to attack large swaths of civilian areas. And that's why they've already exceeded by a considerable amount the number of civilian casualties that Ukraine inflicted, that Russia inflicted on Ukraine in this war. So it, it's it's really, if you stop and think about it, it should make everyone rethink what we've been told about uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Additionally, we know it, it's there's more and more evidence confirming that the Ukrainian government and the Russian government were very close to having a uh, peace agreement that would have really stopped the war uh, before virtually any of the destruction had even taken place. I mean, there was the invasion, but it was with a small force, like 40,000 people or so, if I remember correctly, that they couldn't possibly have used to take Kiev or to occupy the country. I mean, it, increasingly, it just seems like the invasion itself was a way to bring them to the negotiating table to deal with the security threat posed by this uh, regime that the U.S. installed with an illegal coup in 2014. So the amount of evidence that this is just a terrible disaster that could have been avoided, that it was really U.S. imperialism that brought us to this war in the first place. Uh, this is more clear to people. It's just that the mass media is going to, until the end, lie about a few important things. They're going to lie about the U.S. hand in, in putting that regime in power in 2014, which is the start of this whole thing. They're going to lie about, they're going to omit the discussion of a Roman or Roman, Russian uh, peace initiatives in December of 2021. And they're going to lie about the peace talks that were scuttled by the U.S. And they're going to lie about uh, the, um, the, the Nord Stream. So that's four things, really, I guess. And uh, this is just, so we're having a, it's, it's mostly not being discussed because of Gaza, uh, but to the extent that it is, it's, uh, they're in denial about it. You hear re weird reports of like some great thing that the, uh, Ukrainian military accomplished, and it's all uh, ridiculous. Like I, I, the average age was a month ago, or a month or two ago was forty three for the Ukrainian military, uh, the soldiers, yeah. and that is only getting worse. It is, it could be a whole collapse of this society, and uh, unconditional surrender. I think could potentially be in the cards if Russia seeks to apply enough military force to make that happen. Thus far, they've actually shown. A lot of restraint and i think that it, it's going to become more clear to historians that that was really the case as this goes on but it's a total disaster for the united states and a, a humiliation that i think is going to contribute to hastening the end of u.s global dominance in a number of ways 
Yes, I absolutely agree with that. Um, but not only is it a complete disaster for the United States, it's worse than that for the people of Ukraine, right? And that I think is what's so frustrating to me is that, um, you know, an entire generation of Ukrainian men essentially were sacrificed on the altar of Western imperialism. And I think that as we progress further and further down the line, and as we maybe get further and further removed from the situation, as you said, historians are probably going to look back. Um, and and that's really going to become more apparent to people. And I, what's so frustrating about that, though, is I feel like almost certainly nobody will learn from that. We are always doomed to repeat our mistakes. And, um, you know, we've seen that time and time again. But I think that um, there's no question that, uh, you know, I, everything you just said is 100% true. You know, there were uh, m- numerous attempts at peace, uh, different peace talks. Uh, throughout the course of this situation. All of those were sabotaged by the United States. But I think what's interesting now is that Um, You know, you're right. A lot of people are focused rightfully so on what's happening in Palestine. Um, uh, But I think what's interesting, if, if you watch what little coverage there is of Ukraine, the mainstream media is kind of desperately trying to memory hole certain aspects of it. They're really kind of trying to shift their narrative very slowly and very quietly. Um, I think it was Kit Clarenberg that noticed that um, uh, the Washington Post, if you go to their website uh, at the top, there's all these little bullet points of the, you know, the big news stories of the day. Um, and about a month ago, the, uh, the the Ukraine war just kind of very slowly and quietly disappeared from the, the top stories that they're covering. Uh, and that's what I think is uh, people need to really, that's why I wanted to talk to you about it, because I feel like it is kind of um it's very quickly disappearing from people's minds and i i think that's a mistake i think we need to be still having those conversations um surrounding ukraine surrounding the way that we got into this uh, and really taking a long hard look at the realities of those situations and the direct role that the united states played uh, i doubt that those conversations are going to have uh, be had on any substantive level in mainstream media for sure um but i yeah the, i think that in an election year um those are conversations they don't want us having so you're right um, I think that the the Biden administration will almost certainly try to drag this out for as long as they can. I think um, they don't want to have that kind of um, th- they don't want to have those conversations and they certainly don't want to have that unconditional surrender prior to the election. I don't know if they'll be able to hold on to it for very long. Uh, but as Glenn Greenwald pointed out, <laughs> they're they're now they were just talking about how terrible Mike Johnson is uh, a speaker of the GOP. Um, but now they're willing to make negotiate uh, negotiate that they'll protect him for more funding for Ukraine. So apparently he's not all that bad. It's just as long as the war funding there. Uh, He's A-OK with them. So, okay, we have to take a quick break and get some headlines. Hang tight. We're going to be back here on today's News Talk. Good news, people. Now, TNT Radio News. Here Here is your headline. For TNT, this is James O'Neill. Indonesia's Mount Merapi experienced a significant eruption on Sunday, resulting in the release of hot gas clouds and lava flows. Prompting evacuations is that the volcanoes in the country also showed increased activity. Sergei Narishkin, the head of the Russian Foreign Intelligence Service, has asserted that the United States is in the process of establishing what he described as the colonial administration in Ukraine. Why not give TNT Radio a follow? We're on all major social platforms, including Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Gab, and Getter. Help us get the word out as we cover the biggest topics of our time right here on today's News Talk. TNT Radio. TNT Radio. All right, we're here joined by Aaron Good. We're just having a little chat about all things, not all things. God, there's so many things, <laughs> but a few things that are happening uh, today in the world. Um, so I want to shift gears and talk about Israel uh, and Palestine. Obviously, that is the major story that's taking place right now. It is, I mean, I know I don't have to tell you, it is incredibly horrific to watch this thing played out, as you mentioned earlier. It's, Aaron, it's literally a genocide playing out on the world stage in broad daylight. Um, and it's, 
it's I guess I shouldn't be surprised that that's actually happening, but I am a little surprised that that's actually happening and that they are uh, that the United States is giving such full throated support, unconditional support to Israel, uh, despite the incredible pushback that we're seeing millions of people in the streets um, on a, a on a weekly basis. Sure. I mean, at, at the very least. Um, but what do you think about what's happening right now? And uh, also, I wanted to ask you about the pushback that we're starting to see from, um, you know, uh, South Africa. Africa and Ireland and others, do you think that that's going to be enough uh, to end this thing? Because I feel like we're on this runaway train and it doesn't seem to be slowing down anytime soon. Right. I, I have a hard time predicting what the Israeli government will do because <laughs> their actions seem irrational at this yes. point. And I don't mean that there's no rationale for what they do. I just mean that what they want is actually insane. And they are lunatics uh, top to bottom, it seems. I mean, the, the fact that none of them are saying to stop this, and it's not merely because it's immoral, I th which of course it is, and it should shock the conscience of anyone seeing all these pictures of uh, dead children or parents picking up the severed limbs of their own dismembered kids and putting them in, a, in bags and walking around this way, or, or all these children that are born, or that are not born, but these children that they have to deal with who have no surviving relatives, you know, and are badly injured themselves. It's the most horrific thing, and it can't really be justified in any way. But, uh, the, the and the whole world sees this. It's a really tiny minority that is on board for this, and it's all white Western countries, more or less, or countries that just have to do whatever the U.S. says. I mean, Jeffrey Sachs has pointed out that in some of these U.N. resolutions uh, on the U.S. and Israeli side, you had basically 1% of the rest of the population of the world on the U.S. side. So they're very, very isolated, and it they're running out of the ability to... They, they seem to have lost, really, the ability globally to to tell the world how it's going to be anymore. And I don't know that they, that this reality has set in for them. Uh, it has not sunk in, and they are continuing a, a kind of insane agenda. And in my book, uh, my dissertation, which I did turn into a book later, American Exception, um, I wrote about the American deep state and tried to look at the way that this regime functions, you know, in a lawless way that pretends to be democratic and lawful, but really there's a kind of clandestine or covert sovereign that can ultimately override democracy up to including like killing the president like John Kennedy uh, and so on. So I, I traced out the different factions of the American establishment or American deep state, you know, the sort of forces that are in power no matter who wins. But I really stopped with Ronald Reagan's presidency because I saw that as basically consolidating a kind of uh, new corporate regime that was buttressed by a new monetary system that gave them enormous power to, to make lots of money around the world because they controlled the global currency and could also fund enormous military deficits for the same reason, uh, year in, year out. But I didn't go past Reagan. And now I think that I did want to do, I do want to do a sequel to it where I basically trace what happens beginning with Reagan, you know, the end of the Cold War up to the present. And I think that what has happened in Israel has made me have to amend what I really thought originally. I don't think that my theoretical framework is generally wrong in terms of explaining the behavior of the American state. But I think that Israel, which I was always critical of and never really supported, um, you know, as an, uh, as an adult who was like out of college and so on and started to learn about these things, I think that they are actually worse than I thought in terms of their influence on the United States. I basically agreed with Mearsheimer, Walton Mearsheimer, uh, and their book, The Israel Lobby, these are two. These are two very successful mainstream um, 
uh, international relations specialists, so they're not a, but radicals at all, but they pointed out that the Israel lobby in the United States has a, a, a tremendous influence on U.S. foreign policy and that they have made the U.S. pursue military misadventures that were very much against the national interest, that they, they went against realist, sound realist principles of how you should run a country in a foreign policy and that the influence of the Israel lobby must be to blame for this, and they hashed that all out. And they were right about that, and I agreed with, with them. But I, I think it's even deeper than that. I think that there are other connections to the, the real power-wielding regime of the United States, or the American deep state, that go beyond that. I think that we have outsourced clandestine activities to them, including uh, blackmail operations like Epstein and such. Yes. To the extent that they likely have blackmail on the U.S. regime itself, and that is not unheard of. I mean, back in the 70s, even, there was an enterprising mobster named Johnny Rosselli who tried to blackmail the U.S. government because they had used him to be uh, involved in these Castro assassination plots with the mafia, right? And so he played a kind of dangerous game to try to blackmail the U.S. because he did have some dirt on him. Now, he was just a, a mobster. And so he wasn't a state like Israel with lots of people backing it. He Johnny Rosselli ended up uh, after you know some some success in some ways, perhaps dealing with his legal troubles. He eventually found himself uh, chopped up into uh, small pieces and put into a barrel in Biscayne Bay, uh, where he was found uh, in a decomposed state sometime later. But Israel, on the other hand, uh, they likely have an enormous amount of dirt on the United States, and and they seem to be a partner of the U.S. regime to the extent that they can actually damage America by forcing America to go along with the ride here. I am agnostic. As a lot of people want to say they know for sure that like Biden is either for this or against this. I don't really know exactly what the role of the U.S. here is and, and U.S. leaders like Biden, but I think it's quite plausible that he knows that this is hurting him politically. And for whatever reason, the power of the Israel lobby in the United States is such that nobody can stand up to them. So we have three, we have a presidential election coming up and the 70% of the public wants a ceasefire in the United, 70% uh, of the U.S. public wants a ceasefire. And that was a while ago in Gaza. It should be worse now, I would guess, or higher now. But no, none of three presidential candidates is calling for a ceasefire even. So what does that say when they are so powerful that every, um, no, no presidential, no presidential contender will side with 70% of the of the public on a on an issue right that says that there must be something there must be many powerful uh forces on the other side that are making them take this immoral and unpo and, and politically unpopular position but here we are so yeah. th we are this needs to be reckoned with and I, I think that as bad as i think the old establishment of the us the very waspy one that got that was you know uh, that dominated in the cold war Represented by people like Alan Dulles, uh, George H.W. Bush, you know, all, and all these various Wall Street people behind the Council on Foreign Relations and so on. That something happened in the 90s when in 1992, I heard Larry Wilkerson say this and then I found more things to support it. George H.W. Bush tried to force Israel to negotiate uh, with the Palestinians over a Palestinian state and said he would withhold loan guarantees unless they did so. And so they did so, but they were very angry about it. And uh, Larry Wilkerson said that he believes that's why B Bush lost in 92. And that actually is plausible because the guy was super establishment. He basically could claim to end the Cold War 
And, and I mean, there's it's much more complicated than that, but it was plausible for him to say that by American political rules. He could say that he um, won a huge victory in the Gulf War, the first Gulf War in Iraq, and that's how it seemed at the time, and he still lost. So what would explain it? Honestly, the Israel lobby reaction, if you look at what followed in the U.S., makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And um, so I, I think that they, when Bush the second comes into power, he does the opposite. Uh, he doesn't try to sideline the neocons and the pro-Israel people. He basically lets them run foreign policy. And some of these same people had written in the mid in the mid '90s. They wrote this clean break report before working for Bush. People like uh, Richard Pearl and uh, Douglas Fife, David Wormser. They wrote this clean break report for the Israeli government, saying calling for and basically a clean break with the peace process and uh, using the, the military to weaken all these other Middle Eastern countries so that Israel would be unchallenged in the region. And they were very uh, much in favor of the Iraq war at this point. And then what, what happens? The Iraq war happens after Bush comes into office. So it's like Bush, it's like W learned the lessons of his father and basically said, okay, I'll, I'll, I won't spurn the Israel lobby. I will give them full control of US and the neocons. I'll give them full control of US foreign policy. And we saw what happened. But note that he did still win re-election, unlike his father. Yeah, that's uh, a great and, point, actually. Yeah, that is a great point. And actually, it's um uh, because it, when HW was around, uh, obviously, the Israeli lobby was influential. But imagine how much more influence they have garnered since then. And I think that that's really what we're seeing play out. So listen, we have to take another quick break. But hang tight. We're going to be right back here on TNT. I didn't ask to be thrown in the streets with nowhere to go. So I didn't think I'd survive. But I did ask for help, and Covenant House was there for me. One in 10 young adults will experience a form of homelessness this year. For these kids who didn't ask to be put in this unthinkable situation, Covenant House is there. Covenant House helped me break the cycle of homelessness in my family. They gave me the love that I needed. Over 2,000 young people will sleep safely in a Covenant House bed tonight. When youth who are experiencing homelessness have a hot meal, a safe place to sleep, medical care and love they can overcome heartbreaking challenges and have a brighter future they just really genuinely just wanted to help me succeed and i'm succeeding i'm a i'm a speaker i'm an author covenant house really helped me and really helped mold me into the woman i am today if you or someone you love is asking for help Go to safeplacetosleep.org today. I'm Belinda, and this is Willard, and we were adopted in 2021. When we first met Todd, he was singing a song, and I was like, wow, look at this kid with the biggest smile, <laughs> and he has a big heart to match. The energy you give Todd, you get it back from Todd. Yes. Todd's a joy. Yes, Todd's is. really is a great joy. I love him. <laughs> you and you. <laughs> Learn about adopting a teen from foster care. You can't imagine the reward. Visit AdoptUSKids.org. You're with Misty Winston on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. All right, we're here joined by Aaron Good. We're having a little chat about Israel-Palestine. Um, and as you were just saying, the Israeli lobby has proven to be incredibly influential, even as far back as H.W. Bush. Um, and obviously, that influence has only grown. And in fact, as you just mentioned, uh, none of the major presidential candidates would ever dare to speak against uh, uh, Israel. Uh, but also, you have... Here's what's crazy to me. Not crazy, I guess, because the weakness of uh, so-called progressives has been on full display for some time now. But I mean, even, uh, you know, the best 
of the squad, for example, are still pretty, in my opinion, incredibly weak on this. They will, you know, to some degree speak out against Israel. I think Rashida Tlaib's probably one of the best on this issue. Um, but even that, I think she does very tepidly. Um, and I think that that just shows that or proves that um, you cannot in American politics speak against Israel. I think Jamal Bowman is experiencing that right now. He dared to go an event where Norman Finkelstein was present and he uh, said that he was a little starstruck by uh, seeing Norm speak. Um, and then all, I think it was a Jewish insider or uh, I, forget, I think that's what that's called, Jewish insider, some publication. Um, uh, and uh, uh, Jonathan Greenblatt from ADL uh, started uh, trashing him and he immediately had to uh, apologize. I'd fully expect to see him palling around with Rabbi Shmuley soon to make amends. Um, but even people like Kennedy, Robert Kennedy Jr., who <laughs> is proclaiming to be a peace candidate, um, has offered unconditional support to the state of Israel, despite the fact that they are very clearly and really, in my opinion, um, uh, uh, undebatably, and uh, there's just no question about it, uh, but committing a genocide, again, as we mentioned in broad daylight. What do you think that that's, and again, you said we need to contend with that as a country. Um, it's very weird to me that more people aren't concerned by the fact that a, a foreign country has that much influence over our government. What do you, I mean, what what, what do you make of that? Well, I think that the Democrats and the Republicans are a lost cause. So yeah. <laughs> uh, th that's they're going to do what they're going to do until the external situation of the U.S. empire changes. And then what they can do is is radically changed. And that moment is coming and they're hastening it with their abject stupidity. Now, as for Kennedy, um, he I, I write for the Kennedy Super PAC and uh, I do the podcast for them. That said, I am shocked by his Israel policy. I won't say shocked at this point. Uh, I am dismayed by it, and I think he's let a lot of people down, and a lot of people are heartbroken over this. I am a little bit more detached for a number of reasons, namely that with my academic work and so on for the last, uh, what, 14 years, 15 years, I've really focused on the dark side of, of U.S. foreign policy such that I have a little bit of emotional attachment. There are times when I find it really, really horrible and I feel genuine, genuinely sad, but I'm mostly kind of used to the the, the horrific nature of it that I can uh, I have a little bit of a distance from it. So what I'll say about it is this, if Kennedy, for all the people that are outraged at Kennedy's policy, they can take comfort in the fact that if he doesn't change his policy, he doesn't seem to have much of a chance. It's He can't really run as the peace candidate who's pro-genocide. It's, it's ridiculous. Uh, yeah. However, there may be more things going on than we know. Well, there certainly are, because none of us understands why he has this policy. You know, I know a number of people that have known him for a number of years that I've spoken to, like David Talbot, um, Jesse. I've talked to Jesse Ventura about this, Dick Russell. They all, none of them had uh, an understanding that, or they, none of them were, they were all surprised by his Israel sense. They don't think he felt this way. Uh, and I have other reason to believe that he doesn't really feel this way about it. So it's a political thing. He is aware that the establishment, the deep state, killed his father and used a Palestinian as a patsy. He knows that this is the case, and he cannot fail to grasp the significance of that. There's reason to suspect that JFK Jr. was killed because of his publishing of the only U.S. mainstream article on the Rabin assassination. Itzik Rabin was the last major Israeli figure who really was seriously pushing for a two-state solution. And uh, he was assassinated by one of by people at a time when Bibi Netanyahu and his group were really ginning up, uh, you know, very 
fasc- fascistic Israeli sentiment. And uh, so they may have had a hand in the death of, of RFK Jr.'s cousin, JFK Jr. Um, so I'm thinking that he really represents the only viable chance to have a head of state who would be moving the U.S. in an anti-imperial direction, but it's not going to matter with this Israel albatross around his neck. And I don't even really want to make the argument about like, well, okay, he's going to pardon Assange on the first day and he's going to pardon Snowden on the first day and he wants to cut the Pentagon budget in half and he wants to cut the U.S. military bases. So that makes him better than the other two who are Zionists anyway. I think that's true. However, I just I don't even think it matters because there's no he's going to lose if he doesn't change his position. But if he does, are they going to kill him? Are they going to kill his family? Does say I mean, what does Israel do to all of its ex- if he were to run this way, he would become a, a more or less a focal point for a potential anti-Zionist uh, consensus in the U.S. And that would make him an existential threat to Israel and Israel. I mean, these people are fanatics. We see what they're capable of. I think that he's in a more difficult position than people recognize if he were to do what people like me want him to do. Uh, I just, but I think also if he's say, going around saying there are worse things than dying, it's time to uh, live up to that. So I yeah. have hope that he will basically adopt Jeffrey Sachs' plan to have the UN Security Council impose a two-state solution on Israel and Palestine, on Israel, I mean, because they're the ones who have proposed it, and that that, that will... And he can sell this as being better for the Israelis, because I actually think that what the Israelis are doing now is so insane that it's going to lead to the end of Israel uh, because the for U.S. Sure. empire isn't going to be around forever. Yes, for sure. There's no. And listen, uh, you may be right about Kennedy. You may be. I have a difficult time uh, buying that because I feel like there's a way that he could go about uh, being, uh, uh, you know, so-called good on Israel in, in Israel's eyes without um, full on lying about the situation that he is uh the way that he is doing he is lying about the situation in palestine he's um uh you know uh, he's saying that they're the most pampered people on earth um things like that so he is uh very the way that he's going about hanging out with rabbi shmuley i think there's obviously ways that he could go about appearing to be good on the israel issue in israel's eyes without um, being as belligerent as he is being about it. And I think that that's the issue that I have. I think that if you're right about it and that he is just, uh, in fact, kind of worried, uh, you know, that he may be uh, assassinated or that his family may come to harm or whatever, which, listen, genuine concerns to have very clearly, right? Those are obvious concerns that you should have. But I think that the way that he's going about it, the way that he is, I mean, he went on Jimmy Dore and I I lost track. There's so many lies that he told in that segment that, it, I mean, Max Blumenthal did his best to, um, you know, counteract those and uh, and rebuff them. But he, he even he got exhausted and he's like, listen, we have to stop this every two minutes to rebuke another lie. So you may be right about him. I have a hard time believing that because I feel like there's other ways that he could go about it without being so um, such a zealot uh, in, in terms of his Zionism. So um, uh, it, but I mean, who knows? Uh, I think that it's interesting that they're that it's very clear that they um, uh, the, the influence that they have. Uh, there's no question about it. If you are running for office um, they will come for you. They're, I mean, it, just with uh, the the squad, there are there's uh, you know, um, APAC is spending millions, billions of dollars to go after the squad, who again, as I said, are fairly weak. So, um, you know, you could be right about Kennedy. It, there's really no way to tell um, for sure. But I think that it's uh, you know, certainly as you said, there's no way that you can ever run as a peace candidate while simultaneously supporting genocide. That's just absurd. But um, you know, it, it, do you you just mentioned that you don't think that he can win? 
A lot of people have said the opposite, that if you run for office and you uh, are not pro-Israel, that you cannot win. Do you think that we've turned the corner there? Because I feel like the, as you mentioned earlier, 70% of the United States population supports a ceasefire. I think that the tide is turned in terms of um, you know, the support for Palestine. I think that the invention of social media and the way that uh, we're able to debunk Israeli lies in real time, I think a lot of people, at least um, in this recent conflict or uh, flare up or whatever you want to call it, the I mean, it's difficult to call it a conflict, as you said. Um, but I think that a lot of people have been exposed to the truth now. And I think that that's really changed a lot of people's minds on the issue. Um, but it feels, um, it, it does feel like we've, we've taken a turn where um, certainly, I agree with you, I think that this will, uh, in fact, end Israel. I think there's no way that they can uh, survive this without becoming a pariah state. I think they already are, frankly. But um, uh, do you think now that th that it is possible to run for office um, w with a pro-Palestinian view uh, and be able to overcome the APAC spending and all of that stuff? I think that we're going to see that that is likely the case in some congressional races, perhaps, and uh, it, it, hopefully it will become a national political issue. And that would be the best thing if it became an issue that you couldn't really side with Israel anymore, but for political reasons, and then that would give people some cover to do this and they wouldn't be, you know, putting themselves out there. It's a totalitarian kind of thing, the way that the Israeli, the Israel lobby functions in the United States, because think about any element of civil society or the political system, where can they, can you actually push back against them? If you're in the political system, we know people like uh, Kucinich and Cynthia McKinney that were targets of the Israel lobby. They just got uh, destroyed because of that. Um, and, or in, in Cynthia McKinney's case, they funded her opponents in the primary, as I recall. And then in Kucinich's case, they just uh, redistricted him out of a seat on purpose because he was an honest man and the Democratic Party can't handle that. <laughs> Yeah. So the, on the in the political system, you have that power. In the university system, you have uh, people like Finkelstein denied tenure. You have the president of Harvard who wasn't even a, a pro-Palestinian person, but she was just basically forced to resign because of a, uh, you know, a, a kind of Zionist lynch mob went after her more or less uh, because she would she wouldn't fanatically res revise all the free speech policies to punish pro-Palestinian people. Uh, in the media, you have Mehdi Hassan who gets fired for being pro-Palestinian, even though he's a total flack for the em empire and corporate America in general. I mean, he's really a despicable character, but yes. because he has some sympathy for the Palestinians as human beings, uh, that's too much. He's got to go. So it really is. Uh, they have very, been very successful about dominating politics and society and civil society uh, such that there's no resistance to this insane policy of supporting Israel. Uh, and I think that that is going to eventually collapse, and it'll be interesting to see how that happens or what the effects of it are. Somebody like, I, I think in the case of Kennedy, the reason that for other candidates, they would be likely in more danger if they broke with Israel for you know campaign finance things. But for Kennedy's candidacy, he, because he is running as the anti-imperial candidate, because he is running as the uh, person who's going to reform politics and wants to confront the lobbies, he has to change his his position on this if he wants to win. Uh, but that is fraught with peril for him, personal peril or peril for him and his family. Uh, they could they could kill him or his family in some horrible way that we wouldn't even suspect. Uh, they, it's just they are, I mean, these are people who years ago, uh, you know, in, back in the 60s, they hired a Nazi, uh, Hitler's favorite uh, terrorist, basically, 
to kill a, a, a German scientist working for NASA on mi rockets, right? Uh, and they had him murder this guy and dissolve him in acid. Uh, and, and an American president who was anti-Israel or a candidate would be a much bigger threat than that. So these people are total fanatics and you cannot reason with them. And I think that that's really becoming clear now as we see how they cannot even be dissuaded from this slaughter that is really damaging them in the eyes of the world. I mean, they could just give a two, they should, could just go with a two-state solution and make peace with people. They don't want it. They have some crazy idea that comes from the Old Testament about what they should do. And if you, anybody says, hey, that's really vicious or gosh, you know, you guys are with all of your greater Israel, it kind of sounds like some sort of Lebensraum argument. And, uh, you know, what, what, if anything that you say to criticize them, Zionists typically just think that's just a sign of your anti-Semitism and more proof yes. that you need greater Israel to protect you forever. It, it is, they're deranged. It is a deranged political movement. And it has far too much power in, in the United States and it's nuclear armed, which makes it, which is another reason why there may be more going on behind the scenes that we would have to take into account in thinking of the way people approach this. Uh, but th there it is. I think it, for, for it, eventually it may become the case in America that you don't want to be associated with Israel full stop. But for now, and for Kennedy in particular, his campaign, his ideas of going out there and talking to people and saying that I'm going to tell the truth and I'm going to wind down this empire and I'm going to stand up to the lobbies. Uh, it's uh, His campaign is really frozen until he modifies his position on that. And if he's not going to, then I, I, it's hard to see what the point is. Yeah, the hypocrisy is really kind of uh, astounding. Uh, the idea that he is, as you said, uh, pretending to be anti-empire and he's going to fight back against all these lobbies and he's, uh, you know, he's the peace guy and all of that stuff. Meanwhile, uh, you know, giving full-throated support to a uh, brutal, genocidal apartheid state is certainly uh, 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 contradictory, to say the least. But yeah, I think that that's, I think we are well on our way to reaching that point where in this country it will be, um, you know, uh, a bad look to be supportive of Israel, unfortunately we're not there yet i think though that um we are starting to see that grow which i think is um it's promising it gives me a tiny bit of hope unfortunately that doesn't do much to help the people of Palestine currently, as we've talked about, uh, you know, thousands of people have already been killed, um, you know, uh, and it, again, we need to mention it's not just about the brutal bombing campaign that is targeting civilian infrastructure, uh, hospitals, schools, refugee camps, things like that. They are now facing an unbelievable set of circumstances, including famine and disease, and there's no clean water, very little food. Uh, I mean, they're hunting down cats and dogs attempting to stay alive. So um, they are really in uh, an unbelievable situation again on the world stage in broad daylight for all to witness and uh, we really have unprecedented access to this uh set of circumstances thanks to social media and we should mention the incredibly brave journalists um and civilian journalists who are on the ground um much to their own uh a threat to their own safety who are you know uh you know reporting what's going on there uh knowing that they are very clearly being targeted by the state of israel uh as well as their families so um yeah i think that we're certainly on our way to that point i just don't know when we will get there and uh, moving into an election year, it, it, you know, supporting a genocide certainly does not look good for Joe Biden. Uh, there's no question about that. So we'll see what impact that has moving into 2024. So, um, all right, Aaron, unfortunately, we were out of time. Uh, tell everybody where they can find you, where they can get your book, where they can find the podcast, all that stuff. The American Exception podcast is on Patreon, and uh, I would encourage people to subscribe to that. It has um, over 150 episodes and counting. And uh, the book, American Exception Empire in the Deep State, is available anywhere books are sold, um, you know, Barnes & Noble, Pals, uh, everywhere else. 
Cool. Thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show. Uh, I always enjoy our talks, everybody. You can find links to all of Aaron's stuff, of course, over on my Substack, a quick one-stop shop, Twitter, website, all of that. So uh, go check that out. Go check that out. Uh, order the book, all that good, all, all those good things. So uh, thanks for coming on the show. I'll be back tomorrow with the one and only Kathy Vogan, who I love from Consorting News. So def- definitely tune in for that. As Julian Assange says, learn, challenge, act now, and don't go anywhere. Timothy Shea is right after this here on today's News Talk.